Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Abundantly Curious podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Page Butner. In this week's episode, we sit down with a family medicine physician of 21 years who has pivoted her energy into new work with meditation coaching and Ayurveda. She now integrates both her allopathic medicine training with holistic traditional methods as well. I'm always interested to sit down with a Western allopathic medicine-trained physician who is so very vocal and open about embracing a holistic view of health and wellness and diving into some of the traditions in medicine and in taking care of ourselves that in the grand scheme of history are actually quite ancient in comparison to the world of modern medicine. It was fascinating to me how our guest walked us through her own journey that made her realize that we have all of these different tools that we can access. And we're most benefited whenever we have the full toolbox at our disposal when it comes to our health and well-being. She has more than 15 different certificates, licenses, and educational programs that she's been through. And so she is very studied and well-practiced in a well-rounded assortment of health and medical practices and modalities. It was so interesting to hear her speak both through a science-based lens and a spiritual lens. The benefits of these practices, specifically with meditation, the way that she paints the picture of what feels like a metaphysical experience and can explain it through the lens of the physical and vice versa, helped me gain a better understanding of my own meditation practice. So stay tuned if you want to hear what has been happening and some of my mind-blowing meditation experiences that I share with you in this episode. Also, stay tuned to hear a revelation that I had about around the 75% mark that is the key to us creating massive, blissful change in our life. And it's more accessible than you think. Before we dive in, I'd like to welcome you to the Abundantly Curious podcast, where we aim to spark curiosity, ignite inspiration, and open your mind to expand into possibility. Each week, we'll sit down with experts to dive headfirst into the magical, mysterious, and awe-inspiring elements of our world, with a focus on topics found at the intersection of science, spirituality, and self-help. Make sure you never miss an episode by hitting subscribe now and joining our email list at the link in our show description and show notes. Our guest today is Dr. Rashmi Shram, a board-certified family physician, certified meditation teacher, and coach. Her practice spans over two decades of working with thousands of patients. She is the founder of Optimal Wellness, where she helps busy women tap into inner peace and power so they can live more energetic and purposeful lives. She is passionate about teaching, practicing, and coaching on meditation and mindfulness. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Amazing. So to kick us off, I'd love if you could give us a little bit of your background and the journey that brought you to where you are today. 
Absolutely. So I was born in India and I lived with a very large, uh, spiritually oriented extended family as I was growing up. And when I was 12, we immigrated to the U.S. and I lost a lot of those, um, a lot of those learnings and, and availabilities for myself. And as I went through college and medical school and all of that, I would dabble in it, but not really spend so much time in yoga and meditation because at that time, certainly when I was going through a medical training, there was a bit of social conditioning that occurred to me as being weak if I had to do yoga or if I, you know, if I spend time in meditation. So what I found was I was completely untethered from all of that. That's when a lot of the stress-induced mental, emotional, physical diseases started to show up for me. And this was about 15 years ago. I was, by all accounts from the external world, leading the most ideal, gorgeous life. And I really was. But on the inside, I was experiencing a very slow churn burnout where I experienced feeling very irritable, not just, you know, with others, but also with myself. I was losing my temper just with myself. I was having difficulty with sleep. I was really not able to understand how to use all of the tools to to release and decrease some of the stress that w- that I was feeling in my life at that time, having two young kids and a job that was pretty demanding and all of that. And so that's when I dove back into meditation and little by little, uh, I started to notice results for myself. Initially, it was something simple that I needed to solve, which was which were these migraine headaches that I was having every day. And that was a wonderful way for me to keep going. Eventually, I started to notice that my sleep was improving. And now, of course, we have tons of studies to show us all of these things. But it was, it was a very um, circuitous route that I took into trying to find some self-healing for myself. And of course, we know that mindfulness and meditation it doesn't just stop with self-healing. We can go way beyond that. And that's really what continued and continues to attract me to it as a way for us to create a being of mind, body, spiritual wellness as a piece of the puzzle that potentially we're not using. Because we already understand how important nutrition is. We already understand how important exercise is. We know it's important for community connection, but sometimes this idea of just being present can elude us. And that's really how I keep to this work. So one of the ways I thought I could stay honest about my meditation practice years ago was to sign up for this teacher training because I knew that I was falling off this, you know, the track a lot and I didn't have a community that I was looking for. So when I joined this community to become a meditation teacher, I had to stay honest. I had to meditate a couple of times a day. I had to meditate. And so in that way, I needed that external kind of cues for me to stay with it. But of course, that's been a while ago. And now I haven't missed meditation in several years. I think it's just a, a beautiful way to bring abundance and curiosity into our lives. And that's why I love teaching it and talking about it. So you started in India with the traditions of the medicine of Ayurveda and meditation And then you found yourself in the Western medicine world and then back to even more holistic practice. What was it that inspired you to become a doctor and how did you find your way from the world of Western medicine to expanding back into your roots? 
Yeah, I really enjoyed so many of um, my volunteer activities that I was trying out during college at different hospitals. So I was very inspired to go into medicine for this idea of um, this is fascinating. You know, I was so curious about just the human body and physiology and the anatomy, and I wanted to get really deep into it. Ultimately, I chose family medicine because what was modeled for me back in early 2000s was this ability for us to affect a great deal of change in a preventive sense and have that be a longitudinal way to to go about helping the people that we're working with. And that's what really attracted me to family medicine in particular is because I thought, okay, uh, let's try to keep people from getting so sick, you know, because we are a sick society. And of course, it, it isn't quite that easy to do that in family medicine. <laughs> but it was but it was this fascination, this curiosity with the brain, with the body, with how does the mind and the body interact and all of those questions that I think most of us have if we're applying to medical school and going to medical school. And then ultimately, just, you know, from day one of becoming and attending and practicing, knowing even before that, that there is something to this mind-body connection that I'm not learning in allopathic medicine. I need to understand this a little bit better from people who have gone before me. And so Ayurveda is a perfect example of that. It is a 5,000-year-old system that has been talking about the importance of the mind-body connection. It is just now that science is catching up to what our ancestors knew all those many thousands of years ago. Mm. And with your experience in the medical community, what was it like to embrace these medicines? And what did you witness in the community? Do you feel like there's a general acceptance or like a dismissiveness? I think there's both, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times, even during medical training and as a practicing physician, uh, we, we go to certain, you know, CME meetings, we have certain um, interactions with folks in the community. And I think it's really mixed depending on the ideology and the kind of the societal conditioning that we're used to, but it is not unusual to have a lot of skepticism for sure. But it's also what I found was people are curious. There are now studies that are validating a great deal of these practices that, again, come back to thousands of years ago. And so I think it's definitely a mixed bag. But there are people who like to stay in a very short and narrow lane, but there are very few of those people I really find in medicine in particular. Um, it, once we start to talk about things like integrating it rather than it being an alternative. And that's a big part of how I talk about this. And it's that allopathic medicine is a brilliant system. It's just an incomplete system. Mm -hmm. And so we really don't know how to deal with a lot of chronic issues. We think we do, but we don't really. We're great with acute things, right? If you and I had appendicitis, if you and I had pneumonia, we wouldn't, I wouldn't sit here and tell you to take a few herbs or meditate. We would, we would go seek care. Um, and just like that, there are certain areas that just it's, you know, we've hit a dead end in allopathic medicine. And that's why I think this is, it begins to complete some of those questions for folks. Mm. And allopathic medicine is a new term to me. Is that like modern, just, yeah. Western? Yep. Okay. Yeah. The 250 year old, you know, type of medicine that we practice now. Yeah. Yeah. It's a baby in the medical world compared to the 5,000 year old history of things it like is. Ayurveda. It yeah. It's a little fetus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So how have you seen them work together and synergize? 
I think it's a beautiful synergy, honestly, because when you bring in, even actually just this morning, I worked with someone where we put on the allopathic medical hat and then I took that off and I put on the Ayurvedic hat. We looked at, you know, what's the mind-body type that's probably going on and what's thrown off right now and what are some things that we can change in addition to one or two of the prescription medications that we might use for a short period of time. I don't do a huge amount of that in an integrative sense. Really, I focus a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot on how can we bring some of these practices into what you're already doing or see what we can subtract or add um, as as a wholeness of being? Mm, beautiful. The and, not the or. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. And exactly. There's something about uh, all the different modalities and practices. And I think that I saw on your website no less than 15 different licenses, certificates, and educational programs. So you have extensive experience, have really studied a lot of different areas of medicine and well-being. I'm curious to know in all of your studies and practicing, do these ever bump up against one another? Uh, or do you find that if you're really looking for it, if you're really curious about it, you can find that it can all really work together? Yeah, what a great question, Jerry. Um, so in Ayurveda, literally nothing is excluded. So that is a free-flowing, there's a place for everything. Mm. And there's a balance to everything. And that's certainly true for mindfulness as well. There's nothing binary about um, about uh, about either of those. And I would say even in allopathic medicine, the one thing that I will run into sometimes is kind of these notions of, and it's a colonized term, I don't like to use it very much, but kind of woo-woo or things like that. It may have gotten labeled something like that, like forest bathing, for example, but then you pull out studies. It's actually been studied. And oh my goodness, we actually inhale these anti-carcinogenic chemicals called phytoncides when we're near these big trees. And there are certain things that as we start to learn about them, if we if we can stay curious, and I really believe everyone has that capacity to continue to stay curious, then there is no end to the learning that we can have in our lifetime. So I don't, mm. I I don't know. Did that answer that question? Yeah. I love the fun factoid about the forest bathing. In terms of, I mean, you are a trained expert in meditation and both the scientific benefits of it and the spiritual. I'm curious to know how these two worlds come together in meditation and how you choose to express to people the overall benefit of it, because it is profound. It is so profound. And so technically, there is no one who is an expert. And so we will call me a teacher and a practitioner. Okay. So. <laughs> and I appreciate you putting so much trust in me. And so I, right, it's a lifetime journey of learning and of being. And so the science and the spirituality is where the juices get flowing. I mean, it is so profoundly synergistic and beautiful. And so if it's okay with you, I can talk a little bit about the scientific benefits, and then we can talk a little bit about that, about the spirituality. And so to start with, you know, just the definition of meditation itself is simple. It is the act or a journey of going from activity into stillness. So we're not creating anything when we're meditating. The stillness is already always there. We're just we're just using this particular tool to access that particular stillness that's already always there. It's a formal way to practice mindfulness. In general, mindfulness is described as the awareness that arises when we are paying attention to this present moment without judgment and with curiosity, right? And so 
if you think about it, we're all born mindful beings already. Uh, if you've been around a three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, no one taught them to be mindful. They are already mindful. They are already curious. They're not worrying about a conversation they had two days ago like we might be. They're not trying to predict the future like our brain is trying to do. They are in the present moment. And in general, they are really not judging anything. And so mindfulness, I think of as our essential state of being. And it's not possible to be mindful all the time, nor should we be. But it's also not great to be on autopilot all the time either. And so to, to kind of come back to some of the benefits of meditation, it's that what we know for certain is that you and I and anybody that's listening to this podcast, we are experiencing an epidemic of chronic daily stress. And that has been going on for decades in the West. And certainly the, the entire world has caught up on that since COVID started. And so COVID just kind of made some of those stressors a little bit more intense or added some more stressors on. And what that can mean is if we're experiencing chronic daily stress is that we can live in this area of this sympathetic overdrive, right? So that's the fight or flight response, fight, flight, and freeze. And when we live like that, certain physiological changes can begin to happen. So for me, for example, it turned out that I was really having a lot of trouble with my sleep. I was having trouble um, with inflammation. All of, all of those things really were directly attributed to an imbalance in in this autonomic nervous system and so when we live like that we can have a constant stream of high sort of levels of our stress hormones adrenaline cortisol all of those things which great they save our lives if we need to run from a saber-toothed tiger or if we need to find the nearest cave but not when we're sitting in traffic and we're late for a meeting or when we we read an email that really raises our blood pressure and so we can really start to notice mentally we can start to have anxiety or depression we can we can even end up in in places with addictions and things like that and not just to substances but it could be like to like social media it could be to anything as a way of numbing that and so when we practice meditation we're actively and deliberately and intentionally moving from the sympathetic overdrive or the sympathetic go 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 into the parasympathetic rest and restore response and we're not trying to make that happen. It actually just happens. And so it's an act of surrender. It's an act of letting go do that. And so you can imagine some of the things that follow from that are we start to notice the those cortisol levels, the adrenaline, you know, kind of all of those levels start to drop, which means that then the feel-good hormones start to increase as well. So DHEA increases, um, which is the very rejuvenating hormone. We start to see serotonin increase by up to 30% within just three to four weeks. We also see dopamine, which is a very strong, powerful um, uh, kind of pull for certain activities. Endogenous dopamine also increases. In the meantime, the immune system improves. We also start to see a change in the blood flow in the brain. And so what happens when we're in stress mode is our blood flow can really stagnate and or be in the kind of that midbrain, the amygdala, the hypothalamus. And of course, it, you know, I'm simplifying this, but in some ways, the prefrontal cortex, the area of really like where we make those higher decisions, the creativity, all of those discretionary things that we do can be a little bit offline. So we can kind of live in a bit of a kind of a, an overwhelm, if you will, which is really where I was living as well. It doesn't mean that we're stuck in a closet or stuck in something anywhere. I was working as a physician. I mean, plenty of us that are working in high 
caliber jobs that can be stuck in this particular area. But when we start to notice blood flow changes, then we can start to have more opening to find more creative solutions for problems that perhaps we felt like we were stuck in all the time. So we can start to have a certain ease about it and we can start to have a, a little bit more of an opening, if you will. Over time, the brain just continues to change. In somebody that's you know meditated for a few thousand hours, their brain literally looks completely different from from somebody that that maybe hasn't tried meditation. And that could result in a whole host of things outside of the meditation, right? So that can increase in improvement in focus, improvement um, in feeling that sense of groundedness as you're moving through life. It can improve relationships and most importantly can improve our relationship with ourselves as well. And so the those are just a beginning of the physical or physiological benefits of meditation. I now have clarity. Like it feels more clear to me in the way that you just explained it through the brain. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm happy to speak to a little bit of the spirituality of mm. the kinds of meditation that I that teach. That would be great. And yeah. So spirituality to me is different than religiosity in that um, there is really no dogma. And for me, it's the idea of that connection to something higher than me and that connection to all beings. That's really how I think of spirituality as. And so from that sense, when we bring the spiritual aspects of meditation into the teachings and incorporate it into our lives, it um, can give us a profound sense of that connectedness, of that interconnectedness. And then when we feel that interconnectedness, it, it leaves us a little bit more open to potentially what we may call quote unquote metaphysical experiences as well, which as we go a little deeper into meditation practices, that can be a really fun part that some people can experience as well. I want to ask you a question about something that's happened to me in meditation since you have your science hat and your spiritual hat on. Uh, so Dr. Joe Dispenza, I've been to one of his week-long advanced retreats before. And in one of the walking meditations, I reached a state that I can only, I mean, zero substances in my body. I'd been eating pretty much like fruit and, you know, normal stuff, whatever. And I reached a state of what I can only describe as like ecstasy. I've never taken ecstasy, but it was a euphoria beyond anything. And I created it on my own in my brain. I'm curious, do you know what that was and how it happened? Absolutely. And it's a really common occurrence, believe it or not. So ecstasy, if you think about it, that word is just moving out of stasis, right? Mm. So unless we do something to move ourselves out of stasis, then we're not going to experience that ecstasy. So you deliberately and intentionally went out of your way to move out of stasis. So that's incredible. Congratulations. And if you if you look at like just anthropologically, every culture, every ancient wisdom talks about ecstasy in a different way. They might not use the word ecstasy, but they actually had it on the forefront of this is what I'm going to be doing. And so what you experienced was such a beautiful part of the human experience. And so from a science, from a scientific way, um, I think there are a few things that happened, but from a spiritual way, really in yogic terms, if you will, um, what can happen is when we can quiet the mind, which is really what so much of meditation really is, because we rely so much on the intellect and the ego, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with those two, but when they lead the way, then we kind of get stuck. There's kind of a ceiling to that. But 
in really in almost every meditation, whether it's a walking meditation, a guided meditation, any of those, one of the things we're doing is we are quieting the mind. We're quieting the ego. And when that happens, it's said that prana, which is really that life, that vital energy that we have, is freed, right? And prana already knows what to do. So when there's healing in kind of the lower aspects of, and it's almost like Maslow's pyramid, once you don't have to worry about food, water, shelter, then you're already connected. And then you're looking for that next area, which is ultimately enlightenment or moksha. You can call it anything that you want. That is automatically what you are already here on this earth for, I am already on this earth for. And so when we can do that, when prana is released, it automatically knows where to go. It's really going out through the crown chakra. It's coming from the base of the spine. It's going out through the crown chakra. And it's it's that sense of toria or, or glimpsing of the soul. That's what that means. And that is ecstasy. There are other higher states of consciousness that we can reach as well, um, or we can stay in different parts of Turia. And I think you and I both know people who can, who are probably there most of the time, right? And that's what's really cool. There's an, a there's a vibe to them. There's a certain attraction. So spiritually, I would say that that's what that was. From a physiological standpoint, you're absolutely right. You needed no substances to reach that. That's what's so amazing, right? Is that we have these chemicals in our brain and we have these receptors in our brain that are constantly there. They're waiting for us to get into these different states, I would say there were probably some cannabinoid receptors that were lit up and meditation can light those up for sure. Um, there's even one, there's a chemical that's known as anandamide and ananda just means bliss uh, that's activated during meditation. Of course, I already talked about dopamine and serotonin. Um, and so from that way, I think you are priming your body by eating well and hopefully having enough rest, right? Because a lot of times, if I'm exhausted and I sit down to meditate, I will fall asleep. And that's mm -hmm. okay because when my body needs the rest, it takes the rest. But if I'm rested and I've taken decent care of my body, then it's really fun to reach these higher states of consciousness. That is so fascinating to me that in a culture, in a world where we have so many substances, right, that help us get to certain states, like there, there's a remembering involved that maybe we've forgotten. Like, oh, yeah, I can access a lot of this by myself through this practice of meditation. <laughs> that is it right there. It's more of a remembrance. It's a return rather than creation of anything at all. And because maybe we don't have that in enough quantities, a lot of us end up searching in some different areas that are external to us. And so there is really nothing external that can fill some of those voids, not just that, but, you know, let's say even ecstasy, for example, or alcohol or any any of these drugs, they're, they're a second-rate substitute for what you can produce yourself. Whew. With this production, with this, I don't know what to call it, this power that we have within us, what are some of the most fascinating, I guess, journeys or outcomes, metaphysical or physical, that you've seen with meditation? Yeah, for sure. So one of the beautiful things is when I have a one-on-one -on -one teacher-student relationship with anyone, then I am kind of their go-to person that's just traditional for really most meditation practices, um, even years down the road. And so a lot of times they'll come back and they'll tell me different experiences or talk to me about them. But I think that the thread that follows through really everything is synchronicity, 
really truly synchronicity, right? And it really just happens when we when we continue to stay open um, and surrender to whatever is happening. Because a lot of the times, life is definitely not moving in the way that my brain tells me that I should be moving it. And that's true for probably most of us, right? Like we like the things we like, we don't like the things we don't like. We're trying to create more of the things we like and avoid the things we don't like. Whereas life has its own plan and it's going to unfold. And so the 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 less ego that's involved, and again, in many ways, when we drop into meditation, we're really letting go of ourselves or the ego self. And when we can do that, we're allowing life to actually happen to us. And that's really when synchronicity begins to happen, like these beautiful, what we call those miraculous things where, you know, in a simple way, it can be that Maybe you and I, we had this conversation. It was great. And I think of you and you text me and you're like, hey, like, how's it going? Do you want to go get coffee or something? Um, and that didn't just happen. You know, that was a that was something. So it can begin small like that, but it can also just be, you know, you're really looking to hire someone and you've had like 15 terrible interviews and you just, you say, I surrender to the universe. I really just want this person with this, 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 this. And then they just appear before you. There are little things like that as we begin to surrender a little bit more and more and let the ego go a little bit more and more, which is, again, a journey of a lifetime because <laughs> the ego hangs on real tight, um, that we really start to see more and more synchronicity. And sometimes it makes a whole lot of sense and sometimes it doesn't. But when we start to look back and out, there are a very simple set of things that begin to happen. Hmm. You mentioned the surrender and releasing control a little bit, which is not to take away the power of like you can change things, but just trying not to control the things that you can't control. I'm curious to know, is there any sort of like physiological thing that happens whenever we release control a bit? So that's a great question. One of the things that can happen, one of the ways that we can inadvertently bring on suffering to ourselves, right? is by not accepting reality as it is. So when we do that and we hang on to, no, I don't want that, I don't want that, I don't want that, we're really activating again that sympathetic nervous system. So we're creating more stress in our lives when we are not accepting the things that are right in front of us. And when I talk about release or surrender, and please understand that this does not come easily to me. So it is not like I have some, you know, like anybody that you talk to will say, no, 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 she's still trying to control everything. <laughs> or at least my teenage kids will say that, but that's not, I've, I've let go a lot, let me tell you. So <laughs> in other words, when we are, because, okay, let me just give you an example. So like in the next day or so, my 17-year-old, who is an incredibly responsible, patient, kind kid is just going to be driving late at night and all of these things. And I don't like that. I don't want it. <laughs> so, like, I'm like, I don't want it. I don't want it. And, and then I'm, let's say I'm like looking on Life360, make sure she's driving all this other stuff. Well, I've really just spent a huge amount of my brain energy and a lot of my time like worrying about something that I have zero control over, right? Like zero control over. And yet, if I were to say, you know, 
she's a really good driver and she's making great decisions. And uh, let me focus on the thing that's right in front of me. I would conserve a lot of my energy and I would not be in that fight or flight. So that's just one simple example I can give you just as a mom. I mean, you can you can use that for anything like the first day of kindergarten. You can use that for the first day of, you know, getting on a school bus or, you know, anything, right? Or a first play date with somebody you don't know. Any of those things um, can can physiologically then free up some energy in a very practical way. This resonates on so many different levels. There was an instance in a meditation I had where I came out of it and I was so proud of myself. It was actually one of my first Dr. Joe meditations at his space. Something about the field of being with all the different people I think was extra powerful. But I I managed to stay the whole time. And what I mean by that is that my mind miraculously did not wander the entire hour. And I, I stayed so present and so focused. And afterwards, I was victorious. I didn't know that was possible. And for about 45 minutes, I was in this state of like, nothing could touch me. Like I was, I am, you know, and someone could have probably come up and grabbed a piece of my food off my plate and ate it and been like, you suck and ran away. And I would have been like, have a good day. You know, it was wild. What I'm hearing from what you're saying is that a lot of the drama we have in our world is like created within us. And if we can get out of our own way, we can access maybe not all the time, but consistently a state of bliss. Yes. That is exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. Yes, yes, and yes. And and making decisions with more ease, bringing more ease into our lives and letting go when it is helpful to let go. And not and that doesn't mean being passive with our lives, but <laughs> letting go when it's helpful to let go. And really the only way we can do that is to bring awareness, right? Awareness is always the first step to transfer information. And mindfulness is so important for that because it the definition of mindfulness is the awareness that arises when we're paying attention to the present moment. Because a lot of times we are so caught up in the melodrama in our minds that we don't even know that we're caught up in the melodrama in the mind. We leave those thoughts, we have the constrictive emotions, and we believe those emotions, we take actions or we take inaction and so the results aren't really exactly aligned with what we want. When you help your clients, how do you help them to see the difference and discern between what is to be released and what is to empower yourself around? Yeah, absolutely. So we really just simplify it, right? It's easy to make things complicated, but we can look at, okay, what's showing up for you over and over and again? right? Like I wanted this promotion. I I worked for five years to prove that I needed this particular chairmanship position or something and I didn't get it. And it's totally unfair, right? And so imagine that thought swirling and swirling and swirling. It causes a great deal of resentment. Now, when we lose something, it is important to notice grief. This is not about grief. This is really about kind of the self-flagellation that can occur and the frustration that can occur outside of that. Or if we make a mistake, the self-flagellation that can occur with that. And what we know for sure is we have the ability to not... Um, to, to not believe every thought that we have, right? And so, because we are not our thoughts. And so when we are able to take just even one millisecond and take a step back and question the thought, just look at the thought out of a neutral curiosity and then notice like, where is it leading me? 
right? And so if the thought is life is totally unfair, I should have had this promotion and now it must mean that I suck or they hate me or whatever it makes, whatever it is that we make mean about ourselves, right? And so it doesn't change the fact that you didn't get this particular promotion, but it does change the fact that you end up really going into this like vortex of negative energy. And it's okay to feel all of those things for us, whatever it feels like for you, right? So if it's an hour, great. If it's 30 minutes, great. But we generally go, okay, is this expansive or is this constrictive, right? Now, if some people are so well-trained with their mind, they might say, well, I didn't get this because I actually have another bigger potential that's opening up for me during this other thing. That's an expansive area, right? Most of us don't go there right away. We have to train ourselves to go there. So when we start to notice that there is a swirl of this negative vortex of energy that's happening, we can really just out of curiosity question, is this helping me get to this place that I want to get to? Most of the time, the answer is no. And so then we have a choice. Do we continue to wallow in that. And it isn't that it's weak to wallow in that. It's fine. But at some point, the results don't change. We have a huge cost to it. And if you're not getting any benefit, why are we doing it? Mm. So the first part of this is the most is the most pivotal and the most important part of it, which is having the awareness that we're having these really intrusive thought patterns that aren't helping us. Mm. Do we get addicted to those in a way from like a physiological perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I think we are in a society where we think it's helpful to criticize ourselves. We are in a society where we think it's helpful to beat ourselves up when things don't go our way. But what we know really from neuroscience is that that's actually not true at all, is when we're able to drop that inner judgment that we actually can move through life with less turbulence and with less friction. This is helping me understand even better how multiple people can have the same reality, but a totally different experience. That's exactly right, because we are creating our experience of life. Hmm. I want to touch on a part of the body and how it relates to meditation, the pineal gland. (laughs) What are your thoughts on this? How does it perhaps contribute or not contribute to the act of meditation and accessing different levels in the mind? Yeah, so the pineal gland is this teeny tiny, beautiful secreting gland that's at the absolute very center of the brain. And in yoga, in meditation, that is actually the point of the third eye. And so it's said to access, so, you know, we think of it as here, but really anatomically, it is the pineal gland. So that's the third eye or the agnya chakra, if you will. So it's a vortex of energy in yoga and and in meditation. So it's also said to be the access point for intuition, which can be a really powerful way for us to make decisions in our lives. So during meditation, it's said that if there are any blockages in that particular chakra, because remember, um, really this, this energy force that's always at the base of our spine is always looking to be released either through the third eye or through the crown chakra. And when that happens, we do have more access to higher, higher thinking centers, creativity, like I said, as well as intuition. And intuition can lead to synchronicity as well. And so in kind of a medical perspective, it's just a beautiful gland, you know, that's very important in the endocrine system. I, I learned about it from that standpoint. Um, but 
On the other hand, we know that in yoga, in meditation, and in a lot of these different wisdom traditions, that particular area of the brain has always had some sort of sacredness to it. That makes me so curious. There's something that people bring up, and I don't know if it's just like a thing. I don't know if there's any substance around, but they say that a lot of our pineal glands are calcified. Is that true? What does that even mean? You know, so that would mean that you and I would have to have MRIs of our brain, (laughs) right? And so in general, most of us aren't really having that done, mm-hmm. right? I mean, sometimes potential, it's so small. I don't know that you could even see that on a CT scan. Um, and so I, I don't know that there's any real truth to that or untruth. I'd have to look up some studies on that, but I think it's safe to say we're not using our intuition enough. Mm, yeah, fair. Whenever it comes to meditation and physical healing, how, if at all, do you find that they might be related? So physical healing, I always remind people and myself that the body is constantly trying to reach a state of homeostasis, which is this dynamic non-change in the midst of constant change, right? And it can reach that when we are in the parasympathetic self-healing mode. We can get there in many different ways. So when we're sleeping, we are healing. So that's a good one, right? Like we're in the parasympathetic state. When, you know, right after exercise, if you go, if you have an amazing run, you can start to see homeostasis there as well. If you have a beautiful meal that you've shared with people you love and care about, and you've had this genuine connection with these other people, you are in homeostasis. And so it isn't just your meditation, but we can mimic many of those states when we are meditating. And, and so in that way, there are many, many ways to promote self-healing. And I think meditation is a powerful one of those, but there are also many other ways that we can promote self-healing as well. Certainly food is medicine, movement is medicine, all emotional healing is medicine, release of stress is medicine, community is medicine, connection is medicine. I think we can use all of those. Mm. I think you've touched on a lot of it, but just to make sure I capture as much of it as possible, is there any other like powerful messaging that you would provide to people if you were inviting them to meditation? Yeah. So one of the most common things I'll get um, or questions or misconceptions will be, well, you know, I'm not trying to levitate. And I, I get all of that. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, uh, reach alter states, although a lot of people do and can. It's really more of I tried it and it doesn't work or I don't even know how to control my thoughts, those types of things. And so the idea really is that it, it's not there to control your thoughts. It's, it's for us to have a little bit of space between the thoughts and everything else that follows, the ability to have a little bit of space between a trigger and a response. So in that way, there's not really just one experience that we're supposed to have during meditation. And just like any other activity or new thing that you try, it's going to seem challenging at first, right? Because we're used to living in a very distracted world. And so if we're even for two or three minutes trying to just train the mind on something, it's going to seem challenging. So I like to use the word training rather than controlling because Mm. control connotes a sort of struggle or a battle. And that's not at all what meditation is. It's really about allowing what's not important in that moment to fall away 
and to train the mind. And of course, that shows up in so many different areas of our lives outside of the meditation. And that's that's actually what's important. Is it, it isn't that there's a perfect meditation or a certain quality of meditation. It's what are you seeing outside of the meditation? That's what's actually really important. Mm. Yeah. And that touches on the fact that there are many different types of meditation. I know when I first started three years ago or so, I was like, okay, headspace, three to five minutes, let's go. You know, and I've since only just begun to hit the tip of the iceberg. How many different types are there? What do you recommend for people to get started with? There are so many types of meditation out there and they are all valid. The way that I see meditation is it's not like there's only one perfect meditation for you or for me. And, and it's also not useful to go after, well, I tried this, I tried that, I tried this, I tried that. Generally, when you like something, it's best to go deeper into that particular practice. So in general, I think for beginners or anybody that's looking to kind of step into it, any kind of breath work or something that's based in breathing is very, very important. And I generally think of that as a great first way to get started. In fact, when someone comes into either one of my programs or working with them one-on-one and they feel like they're a 12 out of 10 in anxiety or overwhelm, we really just start with the breath and you can be there for months and you can get result after result after result. So pranayama is a whole wing of yoga. It's a whole system in and of itself and we can incorporate that into meditation. So that's really how I think of it. Then there's guided meditation. So I teach a kind that's called yoga nidra and then there's also mantra-based meditations. And so Mantra is, um, it, it really just means mind vehicle. That's what mantra means in its own way. It is, again, as I mentioned before, just really trying to quiet the mind, really trying to get the mind out of the way so that we can slip past the mind. So I think there's so many different types of valid meditation. Um, and I usually tell people to run if somebody says, this is the only meditation you should ever do the rest of your life, because that's not really true. So interesting. Whenever you mentioned breath a couple minutes ago, I realized I was holding my breath and it reminded me to take a deep one. We need to breathe. <laughs> Absolutely. We can do that. Yeah. It makes such a big difference. Whenever you work with people, I want to give you a chance to share how you work with people, how you support them and what your current work focuses on. Yeah. So I do group programs as well as one-on-one. -on -one. In my group program, my signature group program is called The Power Within. So we take deep dives into meditation, into mindfulness, and Ayurveda in particular. We look at <clears throat> mind, body, emotional well-being. So we go through things like the seven steps to emotional release, the ways that we can gain more mastery over our emotions, the ways we can train the mind so that we can have more ease and and the ways that we can actually begin to um, not, I don't want to say use meditation, but but actually get into a flow of life so that we are headed in that general direction that we want to head in with more of this sense of purpose, with a little bit more energy, having let go of the baggage that's really keeping us down. Um, and so that's really what I focus on. I also teach in other programs as well. Right now, I have a program that's launching that combines the wisdom of herbalism and herbal healing with meditation. And we might be launching that one more time, but it's called Nourishing Mindfulness. And it is a beautiful synergy between herbal healing and meditation. So these are the ways in which I help people. Mm. I'm sitting here and I'm 
equal parts so excited that we've had this conversation focusing mostly around meditation and also a little bit bummed because I know that you are a well of knowledge and there's so many other things I wanted to dive into, but maybe we can get together again soon. 100%. For those who do want to follow along with you, where can they connect? Yeah. So my website is optimalwellnessmd.org. I actually have a free um, meditation that they can that they can use that's right there as soon as there's a pop-up. And it's a really evidence-based meditation. It's a really fun one to try. I also have a YouTube channel as well. So my website is optimalwellnessmd.org. My YouTube channel, if you just go to YouTube and type in my name, Dr. Rashmi Shram, it should come up. I also have a whole bunch of um, evidence-based meditations that are completely free there. If anybody wanted to try those, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel. I'm on Instagram as well. I'm pretty active there. It's where I'm most active. And my handle is just Dr. Rashmi Shram. So it's DR period. And then it's my name. Um, I'd love to connect with folks. Great. Everyone go find Dr. Rashmi. And I ask every guest, if you could leave our listeners with one message, what would it be? It would really be, because this is called Abundantly Curious, which I love so much, is to bring that curiosity to every part of your lives. And to bring just a gentle questioning of our thoughts, a gentle way to look at, is this helping me or is this not helping me into really every part and, and staying curious and open for really our entire lives. Ooh, thank you so much for that wisdom. And thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I've learned a lot. Love the conversation. I appreciate you. Really grateful to be here. Thank you so much, Jerry. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to be kept in the loop on new episodes like it, follow us on Instagram at Abundantly Curious or join the email list at the link in our show description and show notes. And if you've got extra love to give, which we always welcome, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And remember, when we open our minds, we open to new possibilities.